Blog Talk Radio. You are listening to the Four Person Show on Blog Talk Radio. We are your enthusiastic and faithful Catholic apostolate. For more information about what we do, go to our show page at thefourpersons.com and our blog site at thefourpersons.net. To call in tonight with your comment or question, dial 515-602-9655. The number, again, is 515-602-9655. Friday and welcome back to the Four Persons podcast. First of all, apologies. I know you've uh, I've been out of the lineup for a couple of days, uh, fighting kind of a nasty kind of I don't know cold, allergy, bug, whatever you want to call it. But uh, I'm just about fully recovered and I'm, I'm really really happy to be back. And it's Friday afternoon, Friday evening, and that means it's the Luke Haskell Show. And Luke, first of all, welcome. How are you doing this evening? Thank you. Uh, I'm doing well. I'm glad you're doing well. And we're continuing kind of on this this, uh, path that we've been on about uh, uh, approaching – Kind of approaching logic, applying logic uh, to scripture, and where those uh, where those guys of the Reformation kind of got off the got off the trail there. So we've completed about three hours so far on it, um, and uh, why don't we start by just let's just do a basic review of what we've kind of gone over so far. Yeah, there's there's so, so much that we've gone over so far, and this is built up in layers. Where you have Protestants, they see things through individual scriptures, because these individual scriptures, the the strongest ones in their mind, are the ones that end up uh, with a, an anti-Catholic interpretation of them. They end up to be a tradition of false exegesis in an anti-Catholic interpretation. So with Catholics, we see things built up in a covenant theology and in a whole, you know, in this larger image. Uh, of course, it includes the living the faith, but uh, it includes more of an Ignatius principle where we place our minds back into the first century church. And we see scriptures through the eyes of uh, more of like a, a first century Jewish convert than we do as a uh, – then uh, the difference between this and uh, Protestantism, modern-day Protestants, is they see Scripture through the tradition of anti-Catholicism, not even realizing it. But we can go back over a few of these points uh, that we've you know, talked about in the, over the last three hours. And I want to do this also for the purpose that that uh, as we move on further, we'll see how these layers build up and build up and build up into a situation where 
it's almost it, it's impossible to dispute uh, with all the information there with any kind of logical. And to go over just a few of these things, it, it's obvious that Luther did not believe his understanding of faith alone was present in the church forum because he said he created it. If he says he created it, then he did not see it from the church fathers. Luther obviously was uh, read the church fathers because he said they were all unanimous in their belief in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So he accepted the belief in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, yet he did not accept the understanding of the church fathers when it came to justification, which uh, in this uh, uh the church fathers actually differentiate between the works of the law being the Mosaic law and works of charity. So at one point he accepts the, uh, some of the church fathers and, and stuff that goes against what he wants to believe when it comes to justification, he simply ignores them. Uh, Protestants tend to take a cookie cutter to the church fathers in the same way they do scripture. They say that uh, an example would be they say Augustine believed in faith alone. This makes no sense whatsoever. You look at you know who Augustine was. Augustine was a bishop of the Catholic and placed a, a strong emphasis on grace, but the prophecies fulfilled of the laws written on our hearts, as opposed to the letter of Mosaic law, which they had as rule, fear, and temporal punishment for Jews Jews only is grace given freely. Uh, an example would be the the stoning of an adulteress. Now, these are rules, fears, and temporal punishment compared to a law of conscience, uh, of, of grace given freely uh, through, through uh, an amazing transformation that occurred. So Paul addressing some of the Jews in the church at Rome writes, for whosoever has sinned without the law shall perish without the law, and whoever has sinned in the law shall be judged by law, for not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles who have not the law do by nature the things that are of the law, these having not the law are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written on their hearts. Their conscience bears witness to them. So here Paul is referring to a new law that has come into the, our world through grace. Gentiles do nothing about uh, the Mosaic law. They're completely separated from the, the, the Jewish community. Gentiles never killed the bull, never sprinkled the blood of the bull on themselves, taking on the curse to keep Mosaic law. But something incredible happened through the cross when the Holy Spirit entered the world. A new level of consciousness above natural law became a reality on a large scale. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus says, we are saved by grace through faith, not of works that anyone should boast. This boast of the baptized Pharisees who had gone in the way of Korah, uh, challenging the authority of God's church. This was the reason for the capital of Jerusalem, as we went into that extensively. Judaizers were boasting about keeping ceremonial laws and circumcision, believing they are closer to God than the Gentiles in the church were because they did so. Therefore, through this influence of the Holy Spirit that Peter was given a vision, Peter, our first pope at the, at the council, declared they're all saved by grace, not the law of Moses. So 
Uh, third, we understand that the only time we see the words faith and alone in Scripture is when we read James telling us that we are not saved by faith alone because faith without works is dead. Yet we also made clear that the Catholic Church has never had a doctrine that stated we are saved by faith alone, but we are saved through transforming grace. This is just simply a, a nonsensical uh, you know, process of argument that Protestants do. We showed in Scripture that the early church lived by obedience to the faith, being dedicated to the doctrine and the breaking of the bread and the prayers, which we see in the book of Acts, which from the beginning of Christianity, the breaking of bread and the prayers was always understood to be the Holy Mass. There was never a time when it wasn't, all the way back to Christ. So we also discussed how the phrase, the way, does not identify the name of the apostolic church, but identifies the narrow road sacramental life, living in obedience to the faith with bishops, priests, and deacons, when you look at the proper etymology of the words, and participating as our general redemption of the world, this is part of the way. We show through God's own words when he said, not everyone who saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he shall enter the kingdom. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Have we not cast out devils in thy name and done many miracles in thy name? And so we show in God's own words that God places obedience to the faith even above the gift of prophecy and the ability to cast out devils and even miracles. And obedience, if you, place your, if you use the Ignatius principle, Obedience to life lived and the gift of the life lived is transforming grace. So the epistles are not a catechism. They are written to members of the church who have received the grace given freely of baptism, who are living in obedience to faith and of the sacramental life. Uh, and it's, uh, uh, some imagery, again, if I stayed with you for three years and taught you how to build a house, then I left and went about on my journey. If I later heard that you were having problems with the wiring of the house, uh, would I write back going over to building the entire house or just wiring? Uh, it would make no sense for me to go back over everything I taught you over three years. I would write about the wiring because that is what is pressing, uh, that is the pressing subject matter of the time. And this is the nature of the epistles in the Church of the Baptized for those who are living obedience to the faith. So it's the, it's the epistles are over and over again, they ask rhetorical questions. And so you can only truly understand them as you live in obedience to the faith, the religious ritual of the covenant. Right. Because if you're not living in obedience to the faith, uh, and the point you touched upon, Luke, is that your entire your entire approach to scripture is wrong. And you kind of seized on it at the beginning where they, they kind of seize on a single thread. They'll seize on a single proof text or a single chapter. Uh, for example, I, the, the clearest example I can think of is they seize on Romans chapter four, uh, alleging that it proves that works have nothing to do with faith. Well, in order to come to that Conclusion, you literally have to rip Romans chapter 2, which you cited just above, 
out of your Bible. You you cannot come to the conclusion they come to on Romans chapter 4 in the context of understanding Romans chapter 2, but they do that all the time. And the Catholic approach to Scripture is so completely different. And that's why they have so much difficulty understanding, like the doctrines of Mary, uh, you know, where, where, where they where they talk about well where does it say that that mary will be will be the queen and mary will be the mother of all the living and mary will be the enemy uh, of of the devil name me the scripture that says that and you can't name one scripture that says that it's 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 taking genesis 3 and tying genesis 3 to first kings chapter 2 and taking first kings chapter 2 and tying it to Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 and Psalm 45 and, and and Luke 1 and Luke 11 and Luke 13 and John 19 and Revelation 12, all of those scriptures, uh, it is, I, I love the image that you use. It's like a tapestry. All those threads come together to form a, a, a tapestry. And if you don't understand how all the Old Testament scriptures point forward to the New Testament and the New Testament scriptures point back to the Old Testament and it's all woven together. If you don't understand that, you can't understand scripture and you can't understand that except through the context of the church because like you said, the church understood what the mind of a first century Jew was. They understood the cultural context, the linguistic context all of that is lost on modern day Protestantism, isn't it? Yeah. And, uh, uh, to add to that, when Paul was saying he was, he was talking about uh, if our gospel would be veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. We need to look at who who was veiled to. It was veiled to those outside the church. It was veiled to those not living obedience to the faith and the sacramental life. So this. Just having that Christ consciousness of the entire mystical body of Christ, this is not simply a, a, a group of believers, but it is Christ working through. It would be like you go to a a, a dinner with your family. It's like you go to a dinner with your family. And and they bring up the soup, and, and it's the best, most magnificent soup that you've ever had in, in your life. And you tell the waiter, wow, this, this soup is, is really magnificent. And and the waiter says, oh, well, great. I'll, I'll give your compliments to the chef. Oh, I don't believe in the chef. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's where we're at. I mean, they would rather be obedient to the paper than they would be to the church that delivered us the text that's on that paper. So talk about why uh, obedience to the faith is – true obedience to the faith is going to lead to obedience to the leaders of the church. Talk about that. Well, it's it's all over Scripture. Obedience to the faith includes obedience to the leaders of, of the church is, is just – it should be something that – People just take naturally if if they if they truly read scripture. scripture. The church, which we defined in our last talk, uh, we are talking about uh, the Council of Jerusalem and uh, the Book of Acts. 
the church is called the reestablished kingdom, kingdom of David and Mount Zion, through which uh, the guidance of the Holy Spirit teaches even the angels the manifold wisdom of God, according to Paul. I mean, when Paul said that, uh, said, obey your prelates who have the rule over you for the wash of your souls, there's no way Paul is going to be talking about any other church except for the church that is called the reestablished kingdom of David, Mount Zion, the pillar and foundation of truth. Uh, so it's just, I, I don't know, I, I think some things just come obvious to, you know, Catholics that are, that just do not even come into the minds of Protestants. Uh, this happens, you know, the, this this uh, wisdom that comes into the church also, it happens according to, not to, uh, according to our timeline, but through God's timeline, through the magisterium guided by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and this is even though Satan will plant weeds in the wheat until the end of time. You know, Satan will always try to distort the church and, and, and keep people away from its authority. Uh, the Council of Jerusalem was assembled 18 years after the crucifixion. Uh, this this was our first example. I mean, most of the early councils were councils established to, to defend against heresy by the establishment of clear, concise definitions of doctrine that were in the heart of the church from the from the beginning. You see this in the writings of the church fathers. Nothing there's nothing new. It was in the heart of the church from the from the very beginning and the church fathers just built on these themes that were there and we became more enlightened in these things through the Holy Spirit's intervention into this Christ consciousness, the body of the church, and solidified through the magisterium. You know, Paul writing to the uh, to the Hebrews who were living the sacramental life said, "Obey your prelates and be subject to them, for their watches to render account of your souls, that they may do so with joy and not with grief." These, these things you know, they're hard to overemphasize, especially when you look at the word prelates. It's mm-hmm. divine. It's defined as a high-ranking member of the clergy, especially a, a bishop. So Paul is writing to people who have submitted themselves to the hierarchy of the church as they are living obedience to the faith in the new covenant sacramental life. It's common sense. When you read that verse there, Luke, obey your prelates and be subject to them, for they watch as being, being to render an account of your souls, that they may do this with joy and not with grief, for this is expedient for you. Boy, it's 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 real hard to reconcile that verse with either scripture alone or faith alone. You can't reconcile it with either one because, it, on the one hand, obedience, which is a work, uh, is something to which we're accountable, and the mentorship that the that the um, prelates are held to is something to which they're accountable to and so that does away with faith alone and then on the other hand if we're accountable to the to, to the uh, to the prelates and they're accountable for the way that they lead us well that that sure seems to do away with scripture alone as well it uh, it just the two big cornerstones of Protestantism are blown up in a single sentence, right? Yeah, and you can multiply that by hundreds of examples, too. 
You know, Paul, who calls us to obedience to faith, even tells us that in this new covenant, even the priests have a rule over us in the spiritual matters. He writes to Timothy, who's the bishop of Ephesus. We know this through church tradition. He writes to him about the authority of the priests who are under him. He says, let the priests who rule well be esteemed worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. And again, I cannot emphasize, we cannot separate obedience to the faith from the sacraments and the liturgical practice. James tells us, is anyone sick among you? Let him bring in the priests of the church and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith shall save the sick man, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he be in sin, his sins will be uh, forgiven him. From the earliest days of Christianity, this, you know, this process, it's a process of anointing. It's sacrament. This is a sacrament. And, and uh, this forgiveness uh, was understood as a sacrament conveyed by the Holy Spirit through the ordained New Covenant priesthood. It is grace given freely, as all sacraments are. Sacraments are not works. Protestants try to tell us that our sacraments are works because they, they mix up the Mosaic law. Uh, it can only occur, the sacraments, it only occur through living obedience of faith, which begins with the sacrament of baptism in the church. If you do not live in obedience to the faith, then you do not have these abundant gifts, this land flowing with milk and honey, grace given freely uh, of the sacraments. It's just, it's just not there. Okay, so Luke, speak to the open-minded Protestant. Speak to the, you know, because there's conversions every day. Speak to the one who's really trying to find the Lord with, with all his heart, but he's heard these arguments about how, well, Catholicism has put their, their, their system of works and their system of priests above the word of God, above the scripture. Speak to that person and, and show them where the error of their understanding is and, and why they're being given a false picture, uh, to, to really understanding and apprehending what the scriptures are teaching us. Well, it's you, you you could speak to them through love of Christ and love of the Eucharist and just love of the mystery and love of the idea of unity and wanting everybody to be one in Christ, which all Christians should want. Uh, it, uh, God on earth prayed, Father, I pray that they may be one as you and I are one, so that the world may know that you have sent me. But you also need to speak to them in the aspect of humility of truth, where we must die to self in order to find this truth. Because we discussed this when we, when we, when we came up against cognitive dissidence, and there are good people who just because they have this understanding the you know that they develop in their minds and this had the at the same time had this super strong love for Christ and a lot of these people put my charity to shame i mean i mean the true understanding of charity is being Christ to man and uh but uh, on the aspect of of doing for others and things like this you know there's so many protestants with just incredible zeal you know, so when you have all this zeal and you have this expressions of, of love for Christ, and when you feel that love of the Holy Spirit, and you have this understanding uh, of of what faith is, then 
it is a natural tendency to lean into thinking that your understanding of what this faith is is confirmed by the love you feel God gives you. But it's what, Scott, what Scott Hahn said about this, he says, there's no doubt that the, you know, the Holy Spirit is the Protestant church, things like this, uh, and, and that uh, you know, they have a deep love for Christ. It's just uh, that they, didn't, they do not know. And he says that they do not know that they do not know. Right. And Scott Hahn, who was an anti-Catholic, you know, he, 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 his goal was to destroy the Catholic Church. And he came to the conclusion that they do not know that they do not know. Right. I, you know, and I think part of it, again, goes back to this this issue of the way that they approach Scripture. And I, I think what, you know, Jesus says that to inherit the kingdom of God, you must become childlike in your faith. And I think part of this of, of the sense of that is that you see human beings trying to apprehend heavenly things with human minds. There are certain things that we can understand and be able to explain and be able to formulate some sort of a picture of and yet not comprehend. There's no way that we can comprehend the, the duality of Christ, that he was fully man and fully human at the same time. There is no way that we can apprehend concepts like eternity, omnipotence. We, we can't comprehend these things. And there's no way strictly by reading text on a page that we can understand scripture. There are so many themes and so many uh, wondrous things, undercurrents going on beneath the surface that we need the guidance of the church to understand. And, and if they place themselves out of that, they're at a disadvantage, right? Now, it, it doesn't matter how much zeal they have or how much uh, love of Christ that they have, they're still at a disadvantage because they're not in the church they don't have the mind, the guidance of the Holy Spirit uh, and I know all Protestants claim that they have the guidance of the Holy Spirit individually but Jesus didn't promise that he didn't promise the guidance of the Holy Spirit individually and there's so many undercurrents and themes in scripture that you can't understand um, well I mean you know Jesus says to Peter when Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, Jesus says to him, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And there's so many things that we can't pick up simply by the text and the words of scripture without the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So placing themselves outside of the church automatically going to put themselves at a disadvantage. Yeah, it's a huge disadvantage. And uh, I'll just give you an example. I mean, uh, the church fathers just about talked about, I mean, they talked about almost the entire Bible and the understanding that the, how the church saw it and how they were living it, uh, you know, hundreds of years before the Bible was even put together. Uh, I'll give you one example from, from where we're at right now. We were just discussing James 4.14 
where uh, we have the sacrament of uh, the sick, St. Chrysostom uh, writes about this. He says, the priest of Judaism had power to cleanse the body from, uh, from leprosy, or rather not to cleanse it at all, but to declare a person as having been cleansed. Our priests have received the power not of treating with the leprosy of the body, but with spiritual uncleanliness, not of declaring cleanse, but of actually cleansing. Priests accomplish this not only by teaching and admonishing, but also by the help of prayer, not only at the time of our regeneration and baptism, but even afterwards. They have the authority to forgive sins. Is there anyone among you sick? Let him call in the priests of the church. And he will pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. You know, this is one of the church fathers describing mm-hmm. scripture. And this is the way the scripture was lived in God's church since the beginning of Christianity. So right. the Protestant understanding can never separate from these contradictions and these things that are ignored. At its foundation, is it's a body of contradiction. Because its goal from the beginning was separate, separation from the church, so you have this you have this inbred desire to find scriptures that you could use in order to separate from the church. And when right. you do this, you know God established His church to assist our fallen nature. Fifteen hundred years later, man created sola fide and sola scripture in our fallen nature. So it's obviously going to be flawed. Uh, it's an inevitable because it was created for the purpose of separating people from the Catholic Church. Um, man did so while in fallen nature. Right, and the irony of it is that, that, that the very uh, faulty process that you're talking about uh, not only causes you to isolate on verses that you think uphold uh, what it is that you that you believe, but it causes you to completely miss the meaning of any verses that 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 don't fit your paradigm in, 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 in to the point where you just gloss over them. Like uh, for for instance, a Catholic reading in the Old Testament about the ritual cleansing of the priest in the Old Testament is going to naturally see a typology of the of just what you described, the actual spiritual cleansing that takes place by the priesthood of the new covenant. If you're an Old Testament, if you're a Protestant reading those Old Testament passages, they don't point to anything. So it just looks like it's it's just uh, meaningless ritualism that we don't do anymore, and then and they gloss right past those passages, and they can't connect the dots to find their way to the to the typologies that those verses are pointing to, to that would that would shine the light on their path to the true church. You end up making God look like an illogical God. I mean, an example in Leviticus is the laws against uh, not eating blood. I mean, it says the life force is in the blood. What you partake of, then you become part of. You're thinking, well, this isn't this isn't really biology here, you know. I mean, we, you know, we could eat an animal and uh, we don't become the animal. So, you know, what is the purpose in this? Well, it's a spiritual reality that's being expressed. When I explained uh, last week, I was talking about how the laws of, of Leviticus show the soul, the spiritual reality of the sacraments. 
well, what we have right here, because we believe the Eucharist is true, is basically a foundation for Paul saying the cup of benediction that we bless is this not participation in the blood of Christ. What comes to mind? The life force is in the blood. What you're partaking of is what you become part of. The bread that we break is this not participation in the body of the Lord. So, yeah, there, there's just so much on on the mystical spiritual reality that is missed by not living obedience of faith in the sacramental life, by not experiencing that, that Christ consciousness. You miss the call and answer from the Old Testament and the New Testament that happens uh, over and over and over again. Um Going to where you should hear that uh, Paul calls obedience, uh, Paul who calls us to obedience to the faith, he even tells us this in the new covenant that even the priests have rule over us in spiritual matters. Why don't we pick it up there? Yeah, uh, if we look at just the faith being lived, even our obedience to the priests is actually love. As expression of love for God. So everything in the sacramental life is an active expression of love for God. And being obedient to the priesthood is, is, is the priest is there as Alta Christi, or he's there in, in, in the place of Christ, because Christ has no hands now but ours, no feet now but ours. And, and we are supposed to look at him and be thankful for the image of Christ in him and respect that image and respect that God gave him through the apostolic succession the ability as a member of the body of Christ in a special role to be one who is able to, through the Holy Spirit, give us the Eucharist. And the, the the lack of obedience to the faith, even uh, among Catholics, uh, and not understanding you know the depth of this, is, is is really disheartening. But there's there's just so much that is in Scripture that is read one way by Catholics and another by Protestants. Mm-hmm. And it's like we're speaking two different languages. John three sixteen uh, is I'll, an I'll, example that you cite. Why don't you go uh, go into that? Yeah, yeah. Protestant reads one of the most quoted verses in, in, in Scripture wrong. Uh, as I explained and will always emphasize, in order to separate from the original church, it had to develop a false construct. It's it's a it's a new and different image. I'm saying it's new because it, it didn't even be, begin to be developed until after 1,500 years of Christianity. And once this construct has been developed, it's how Protestants uh, simply look at Scripture through. So they're just blocked to just a huge, you know, image. They're, they're limited in their capacity to really see the depth of it. But John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world as to give his only begotten Son, that whoever believes uh, believeth in him may not perish but have everlasting life. Taking into consideration everything we have said about obedience to the faith and the errors of Scripture alone and earlier conversations, 
When we look at John 3.16, what does it mean to believe if Paul says it is is his job to bring about obedience to the faith and Christ says not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven except those who do the will of my Father. What does it mean to believe if if God, after establishing the Jewish Passover, came in the flesh 1,300 years later and said, I strongly desire to celebrate this Passover with you? This is amazing. And then speaking to his church called bread is body, wine is blood, said, do this. What does it mean to believe if Paul said he should be considered as a dispenser of the mysteries of God, which you see in 1 Corinthians 4.1? And the word sacrament is derived from mystery. And Irenaeus said all the apostles were priests. What's Paul saying? He's saying consider us priests as dispensers of the Mysteries, mysterium, sacramentum, sacraments of Christ. For those who have listened to earlier presentations, remember that Jesus even raised obedience to the Father, uh, uh, obedience to the Father's will above prophecy and miracles. So John 3.16 has to be a summation of belief. This is not simply, uh, the word believe has to be expanded on by using that Ignatius principle and looking at, you know, the entire life of the early church. John, who lived obedience to the faith, has the entire image of faith in his mind because he's living it when he wrote this because this was his life in Christ. They were dedicated to the doctrine, the breaking of bread, and, and, and the prayers. And what did Peter say for those who first were about to enter the church? He says, repent and say, be baptized. In that repentance, you have to have belief. So that belief leads to the saving grace of baptism into the church. Right. So it's very, very clear that it all breaks down with this different way that we define faith, different way that we define belief. And, I mean, you, you could... You could make the argument that we're saved by faith alone if you're defining faith correctly, because true faith is going to cooperate with grace. True faith is going to bring forth love. It's going to bring forth fruit. Um, But what they're basically trying to argue, they're really not even arguing that you're saved by faith alone. They're arguing that you're saved by an assent to faith alone. An ascent to faith is not enough to save anyone. Even the demons believe and they tremble. Yes, and there's uh, there's there's some handicaps uh, there too. And, and, and unless you look at things from a certain perspective, uh, it's it, it 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 can create confusion. I mean, I mean, it can really look like faith alone. <laughs> Uh, uh, as Protestants understand it, because you know, like we were discussing, it's just, it's just the 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 way the words were were imaged, and uh, plus the, there's something that went on about the uh, the time of the uh, when we went from uh, 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 old English the the uh, the low English to the modern English. Uh, before modern English, uh, the words for I believe uh, it was pistis in Greek and fide in Latin. Uh, for the most part, they, they were verbs. I mean, they're primarily verbs. Uh, like you discussed, uh, pisteos, there, there, there was a difference, but 
the, the, this wasn't used uh, as, as, as a primary uh, word. They, uh, in, in, the, uh, in the Latin, in, in, at their origins, they mean to adore or to commit to or to be all in and actually to covenant in uh, because the apostles were Jews who never understood belief outside of a covenant relationship. So this understanding, again, complements Paul's call to obedience to the faith. Uh, if we are look at the, uh, uh, the exegesis of, uh, of disbelief, uh, to not believe is disobedience or uh, apeth in Greek. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. But to not live in the Mosaic law was disobedience that led to the curse being fulfilled. Uh, people got to think, why would people think it would be any different in the new covenant? Yeah, good, good question. Uh, here, here's a few uh, Greek dictionary entries for, for this word, uh, apeth. Uh, this is from uh, some known uh, Protestant scholars of Greek. Is apeth unwillingness or refusal to comply with the demands of some authority to disobey? Disobedience. Whoever disobeys the Son will never have life. We see John 3:36. God wrath comes upon those who do not obey Him, and we see it in Ephesians 5:6. There, uh, apeth the word means to be disobedient, and it is significant in the terms of uh, the Septuagint for disobedience to God. In the New Testament, is used. Uh, uh, of the wilderness generation, Hebrews 3.18, that the flood and 1 Peter 3.20, all sinners. Uh, and uh, to believe is the opposite. We see in Acts 14.1-2, um, an unbelief is parallel. Uh, uh, the concept of commitment also supports the true nature of belief uh, because as it, was, as it was lived in the apostolic church, this is also at the root memory of the uh, original Latin uh, in the word uh, credo. So uh, we, when you go deep into the words, etymologically, etymologically, I can't speak today. I think I need some water. <laughs> credo appears to be a, a compound of two other words, Latin words cor and cordis, meaning heart, uh, as an English derivative, uh, cordial or concord. The primary uh, meaning of credo in classical Latin is to entrust or to commit to. Just like the true understanding of belief in Christianity meaning obedience to faith. So when we say, when God says, this is my blood of the new covenant, do this in memory of me, this is obviously part of obedience to faith. So the Catholic creed is basically an expression of faith that is lived in the heart, cordis. So the covenant life and the sacraments and obedience to faith is what God established as the narrow road to assist us who are in fallen nature. And we take this into our hearts uh, uh, the, and we live it in the, um, by the creed, by the sacramental life. Right. Satan, who has the power to implant thoughts in people's minds, even coming as an angel of light and even creating false miracles. Expand on that. Well, it, it, it's, it, it's kind of fascinating to watch the, the, this development of deception throughout time. 
you know, when I when I really started studying uh, uh, the Bible and Scripture, and when I had that uh, you know this spiritual encounter with Mary that I can't explain away, uh, I felt the need to go deep into the occult. And uh, then in the occult, I began to see how Satan basically created almost a parallel universe when it comes to truth and half-truth. And uh, everything that was done was done to keep people from the Catholic faith, to keep them from the chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood that offers the true Passover for the world uh, in the Holy Mass. You see in paganism, you see triune gods. You see food of the god to become one with the gods. You see gods that are associated with with, uh, being reborn in trees. You see Mary uh, images, uh, false images of Mary as fecundity goddesses. And uh, you see see all these stuff. And then you add this together and you look at different ways the demons work in the world. In the book of Enoch, it says the fallen angels made a pact on Mount Hermon that they would place a reprobate mystery on earth. Well, a reprobate mystery is a corrupt truth. So, you know, whether you believe the book of Enoch or not, it, it, it kind of, there's a lot of support for it, but it, it kind of goes along with this, with this theme of uh, what was going on. Because then you could see how even the church fathers kind of believed it because Justin Martyr's first apology can be summed up as Satan created paganism to keep people from Catholic truth. So with this information, and and you look at the Sumerian burial scrolls and things like this, and you read about these different uh, pagans who in their dreams, gods came to them in their dreams and told them to do certain things or, or where to find certain things. And then you have the images in uh, exorcisms of demons moving things around and and uh, you know, demons giving you know, this power over matter. And uh, it's you, you put it all together and, and, and you see this imagery of the power of Satan uh, on people's minds. You know, he has preternatural intelligence, which is, you know, just way beyond human intelligence that he's had from the beginning of time to create his deceptions. And he uses people's egos against them to do it. So uh, with with all of this ability, is if, if the Eucharist is true, then everything that brings you to the Eucharist is of God. Everything that pushes you away cannot be. And Satan will do everything to keep you from the Eucharist, even creating, uh, you know, uh, false prophecies in people's minds of half-truths, even creating false miracles, even having his demons leave bodies through a, a Protestant uh, exorcism in order to keep the confusion going and keep people from truth. Mm-hmm. You know, Luke, uh, um, when I get a, a little bit off track here, but boy, you, you see a lot of this going on inside Catholicism today. Uh, you see a lot of people, uh, Catholics, going off the rails on all kinds of, of, of secret visions and, and secret writings and things like that that are not approved by the church, often are rejected, condemned by the church, uh, and people following them anyway. Uh, Maria Divine Mercy and, and some of these uh, 
you know, condemned uh, uh, private revelations and everything. So this is this isn't anything new. Satan's been doing it since since day one, and and he's still uh, doing it. Um, also, wanted to ask you something that you brought up a minute ago because um, I have heard what you said that there are a a, a lot of early church uh, fathers that referred to the Book of Enoch. Just your opinion. Why do you, why do you think that uh, that particular book did not make the canon? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, it's kind of funny, but uh, and I forgot where I saw this. So, uh, uh, you know, my my memories, you know, after you know, after after a lot of years, you know, of doing this, I mean, I probably retained maybe one percent of what 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 I've studied, and I think that's probably probably general for people. But uh, I remember, uh, I think it was Augustine. And Augustine argued for it not being in put in the in the Bible because it was too old. So, mm-hmm. so Augustine was understanding that it was older than the Book of Job. But uh, what was fascinating is I was, I was reading a book, uh, a new interpretation of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it's by uh, some guys. I think they, I think the names were Apic and Wise. Uh, and uh, there's a scroll in there called the Patriarchal Scroll. And uh, in, in there, in the patriarchal scroll, it explains that uh, the pharaoh of Zoan's advisors were amazed at uh, Abraham. Abraham read to them from the book of Enoch, and they were amazed at his wisdom. So we can see a reference to the book of Enoch uh, going back at least to the people at Qumran who, uh, you know, who uh, hid the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm-hmm. And the Pharaoh of Zoan, uh, he, he is actually in the Manetho's Kings list, and uh, he is one of the first ones to unite the upper and lower Nile, uh, uh, Nile Delta into uh, one people. Uh, Egypt was called Tanis then. And uh, about the same time, you see in the archaeological record, <laughs> is when uh, the Egyptians started believing in an afterlife. So it's pretty fascinating. Mm-hmm. Who who are your, um, in the history of the church, I mean, for, for, from the early church fathers forward, um, who do you think are some of the, um, are, are some of your go-to uh, mystics, visionaries, uh you know, people of, of that sort, uh, uh, like someone like a, a Maria of Agreda, Ka- uh, Saint Catherine Emmerich, uh, or who who would who would be uh, some of the ones that you uh, put a lot of stock in? You know, you you you're exposing my flaws, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't I don't know I don't know if I would call them a flaw, flaws or not, but uh, you know. It was John of the Cross who said miracles are for beginners. And when I read uh, John of the Cross, The Dark Night of the Soul, and, things, uh, oh. and and I looked at that, and I started looking at, uh, you know, just the idea of trying to live outside of the concept of time, trying to live, you know, as if you're, you know, in heaven looking in. And when it comes to the the mystical nature and the prophecies and things like that, 
I've really kind of put this stuff on a back burner. So I, 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 I'm not experienced with it as much as a lot of Catholics are. Yeah. I, I tend to agree with you to a certain extent. Um, I, 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 as, as far as the eschatological, all of that stuff, uh, yeah, I, I tend to shy away from it. I believe that a lot of Christians spend too much time in the book of Genesis and too much time in the book of Revelation. <laughs> they spend too much time trying to figure out how God created the world and too much time figuring out how he's going to end the world. And if they spend a little bit more time in the Gospels, figuring out how they're supposed to live in the world, they'd be a lot better off. Uh, but one thing that does fascinate me about um, the writings of a Maria of Greta or Catherine Emmerich, and full disclosure, I've read the full works of Maria of, of Greta, the full works of St. Catherine Emmerich, and I have also read Dark Knight of the Soul by St. John of the Cross, and it was a book that had just a tremendous impact on me. Um, but what I like about Maria of Agreta and, and, and Catherine Emmerich and writers like that is not how they look forward, but how they look back. The insights they give us about the Holy Family and and the and, and a lot of the time. In fact, uh, amazingly enough, I read the entire works of St. Catherine Emmerich. And one of the startling things from that book, 760 pages, and woven as a thread throughout the entire book, a character that kept coming up over and over and over again that I had never seen as a particularly predominant character, but is definitely predominant in that work, believe it or not, is Melchizedek. And it caused me to have this this fascination with this this shadowy figure who appears out of nowhere in Genesis 14, and then we see him in Psalm I think it's Psalm 110, and then we see him in chapter six and seven of, of Hebrews all of a sudden, and um, so it caused me to have a fascination and, and the insights of of uh, what they write about. Mary and Joseph and the, and the and the Holy Family and and things like that. That's where the fascination lies with me. Do you have any particular writers that you like to read for those types of insights? Well, I I really I really haven't because I've been you know I've been so focused on just the apologetics aspect of it, and so I I really stuck with the Church Fathers. Uh, I read a little bit, a little bit of the City of God. That was really fascinating, uh, yeah. uh, especially the uh, the images of uh, uh, of Mary. And uh, I've uh, when it comes to uh, you know that 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 type of uh, understanding, uh, uh, like I like I said, I'm really a, a newborn babe with it. I just it just wasn't my focus. Yeah. No, I, I get it. I get it. So let's, uh, I, I want to, you know, I've, I've been on a, on a Catholic book reading binge for about the last two and a half years where for some reason I've just been devouring Catholic books. Um, <laughs> yeah, just insatiable appetite for everything. And, and I, I've got five volumes that are staring me from my shelves. They're staring at me, taunting me, and they are the Summa 
Theologica. And one day I'm going to get brave enough to try and tackle that. But anyway. It's, a, it's on my shelf also. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's scary. It's, it's, it's scary. But, but the first book that started this journey is the one that you talked about, Dark Night of the Soul. That book had such a tremendous impact on my life. Uh, it, boy, the elimination I mean, of the appetites. I mean, I mean, I, 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 even that aspect, which is, you know, we are spiritual and flesh, and elimination of the appetites in order to put blocks uh, 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 toward uh, just, you know, uh, rising above the flesh, you know, is yeah. just really amazing insight. I, I think the most amazing thing about that book is when he talked about why Jesus cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have has thou forsaken me? And and that intimate union with his humanity that he had in that moment in order to sanctify that grief that we feel when we feel like God has abandoned us. And it's just wow. And and he and he drives home the point uh that when we feel like God has abandoned us is the moment in that intense suffering that purgation of the soul is when he's actually closest to us and that was just a game changer for me luke it just it 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 just revolutionized my faith it was such a game changer so uh it looks like we've reached the end of another hour so we're gonna have to probably go another full show on this and maybe more (laughs) But uh, boy, <laughs> there's a lot so of, much. I mean, it just—it's just, it, just a lot of really great stuff. Layers. Yeah, really, really beautiful, beautiful stuff tonight. Luke, would you end us with a prayer, please? Sure. Um, I just pray for both the Catholics and Protestants in purgatory, and uh, let's say a hail Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now at the hour of death. Amen. In the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. God bless you, Luke. And we'll be back tomorrow. Uh, we continue this, this ride. Tomorrow at noon, we've got William Hemsworth and the Burnt Toast and Coffee Show. We've got Terry Delp at 7 p.m. with Taken to the Streets. And on Sunday at 5, we've got Catholicism Rocks. Uh, Luke, I just love the way things are going with this with this apostolate. And God bless you, and thank you for being a big part of it. Thank you. You too. Thank you for having me. God bless. Good night.